Okay, so uh, today is the first session. Becoming <clears throat> uh, together toward the beloved community. So as you all know, our current context has uh, really brought to light in recent weeks the systematic way in which people are marginalized, uh, subjected, and oppressed. Um, the recognition of the need to change the structures that cause great harm uh, to certain segments of our population um, has arisen. You know, whereas before, there are a lot of people that were in denial that such issues existed, right? So these are good things. I think unjust uh, harm should be addressed and dealt with. Uh, I do have a deeper question, though. Uh, what, what is the end goal, though? Um, what's the end goal of dismantling unjust systems and structures? Like, what do we want to happen when this happens? Uh, and this is where... Uh, I come up with the, the notion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of the beloved community. So he said this early on in his uh, work, the end is reconciliation, uh, the end is redemption, the end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. Okay, So this beloved community is a community marked by uh, what he calls agape love and justice. It's a community marked by goodwill for one another, where all are accepted and embraced for who they are. It's a community in which no one is discriminated against for who they are, nor one where power is used to advantage one group at the expense of another. Um, so delving a little bit deeper uh, into the Christian vision of the beloved community. So Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, vision has roots in his spiritual traditions. I mean, he was a minister after all. So the question is, what does our faith and our scriptures have to say about the beloved community, right? Where does this kind of community come from and uh, who makes it happen? Martin Luther King Jr. had distinctive beliefs about where this uh, could come from. I think his initial beliefs were that people of goodwill could come together to make this happen through the philosophy of nonviolence. And he was a big proponent and believer in that. You know, toward the end of his life, though, he saw the depths of uh, evil that was prevalent in society. And uh, he kind of grew despairing that this sickness of America uh, in the world could never be healed. And I think when he died, he died quite brokenhearted by the extent of resistance that he saw to the creation of this beloved community. And so I did include uh, some uh, materials uh, for your viewing and reading. And if you didn't, that's okay. It's not a prerequisite. It won't aid your understanding more. I, I just gave that because I wanted to allow you to have a chance to really get a grasp more of uh, the current reality and the context right, um, on this issue of race and how intractable these issues in, uh, can seem and how big they are. So, I mean, where do we even start, right? That's a big question. And so uh, if you view those materials, you can see uh, how understandable it may have been for Martin Luther King Jr. to grow despondent. The question is, was it correct, you know, for, to lose hope? And uh, does our faith really have a response to this? I'm, gonna, I'm positing that St. Paul had his own beliefs and convictions about this. And uh, these beliefs and convictions come through in his letter to the Galatians. Uh, 
so yeah, the, the Galatians, though, it's, this is a tricky book. Uh, it's, it's a letter and it's only six chapters, but it's very on its own hard to understand. But uh, basically in his letter to the Galatians, uh, Paul clearly lays out his convictions that uh, the old age of division has now passed. And now there's a new creation in which we are all one. And in this new creation stands a new community. And this, I think, is the beloved community. You know, the key difference, though, with Martin Luther King's junior uh, vision is that this new creation and community are brought on entirely by God's initiative. And so you see the slide, God as the agent of change, not uh, human beings. Uh, that's, uh, we are transformed by the Spirit who changes us into the new community of the new creation that God has made. And just as God created the world and humanity in Genesis, now God creates the new world and new humanity through the event of uh, Jesus Christ. That, that was uh, St. Paul's belief. And so many interpreters of Paul uh, believe that he espoused what's been termed uh, the apocalyptic gospel. Okay, it's a big word, but the premise of this gospel is that God has basically invaded our cosmos from the outside. Right? Uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross is the climax, uh, climactic point of this invasion. So the old age, right, the, which is the age of our existing cosmos and the world as we know it, uh, was one dominated by what Paul calls the flesh. Right? And in this cosmos, the powerful rule, injustice is prevalent, and self-centeredness is the way of life. And within this cosmos, you know, the best of our will and intention is kind of powerless to overcome this way of life. And so uh, Paul calls this uh, the present evil age. Right? Um, but into this present evil age, God invades this cosmos in the person of Jesus Christ. The cosmos resists the invasion, though, and puts him to death. God, however, has the final victory through the resurrection. Okay? So the war is actually won. The new creation is declared. But just as in a war, battles can continue even after the war is won or lost. And so battles continue as the old age continues to fight on and resist, despite the end result being known already. Okay? So what St. Paul believed is that we live in this juncture, right, between the old age and the new age, uh, between the present evil age and the new creation. So we live in that, um, the, the juncture. There's a term called uh, already but not yet. Okay, that's where we live. Uh, and if you if we examine Paul's letters, they're rife with polarities. Even just in Galatians, here are some dualistic polarities enslavement versus freedom flesh versus spirit law versus faith slave versus child gospel versus non-gospel and present evil age versus new creation okay so paul i think believed that our lives on earth consist of a cosmic battle between these polarities so in our own hearts right in our relationships with others in our communities and in this world, there is an ongoing battle between these forces until God's final victory will come once and for all. Uh, the life of the new creation brought about by God's invasion is this life in the spirit. It's a life of mutuality, of love, where the fruit of the spirit is born in the life of the new community. 
So in short, life in the spirit is life in the beloved community. You guys with me so far? Okay. Uh, this was Paul's vision, okay? uh, rooted in uh, the revelation that he received from Christ himself. And we're going to study more about that next week, reflect on that. So that's the overall kind of theology and belief system of Paul. Uh, but like, how did this overall belief play out in the nitty gritty everyday reality? And that's what's kind of going on here in this letter to the Galatians. Um, he starts off, he has a real concern about uh, perversion of the gospel. Right? Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians consists of a lot of, there's a lot of anger. This guy's very angry, his frustration and lament. And uh, why is Paul so emotional in this letter? And what's going on? So uh, we're going to delve more into this uh, a little bit today and over the next few weeks. As he begins the letter, actually, with an emphatic amen, okay? Uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay? But then he transitions immediately into cursing. Right? He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let that one be accursed. Our English translation is a bit mild, okay? But in the Greek, it's very harsh. <laughs> Say, like, basically, damn those people, okay? Like, a very strong language. So, from amen to curse. You know, what's going on here, right? Paul is accusing the Galatians of deserting God and perverting the gospel. So, the question for us is, what was the gospel for the Galatians and how was it being perverted? Okay. So to answer these questions, we need to take a brief look into who the Galatians were. Okay. And so we have a picture here. This is a, what's a statue. It's called the dying Gaul. Okay. It was a very famous image back then. Uh, so this picture encapsulates actually the image of the Galatians uh, in the context of the Roman empire. Okay. Galatians actually was another name for Gauls or Celts, C-E-L-T-S. You guys heard that term? Um, in other words, they were the famous barbarians in the, uh, the arch nemesis of Rome. So for several centuries, uh, um, they, were, uh, they struck terror and fear in the hearts and minds of the Romans. So for several centuries, uh, they battled back and forth uh, in the borderlands. So this, they were, in the Romans' eyes, wild, lawless, and untamable people. Uh, all, and so they're always on alert for invasion from these barbaric hordes. After centuries of campaigns, though, uh, they were defeated one tribe at a time until they were all finally vanquished and subjugated as a people. And so this is how the Romans characterized them, as the defeated people, right? Uh, now, Romanized Galatians, right, those who were defeated would then... Uh, become Roman in a way and use Roman power and methods to attack and subjugate unromanized Gallic tribes, right? In this way, you guys heard of Romans using divide and conquer? This is how they did it, right? 
So the Galatians were eventually uh, one by one Romanized, civilized, and incorporated in many ways into the Roman system. Uh, they became, a lot of them became vanguards for the Roman military and were called upon to serve as bodyguards for local kings and leaders, including Herod the Great, uh, who was the king uh, when Jesus was born. He had a, a Galatian bodyguards, right? But I mean, they were always still kind of looked upon with suspicion. Uh, on the surface, uh, many had Romanized, but under the surface, there was a suspicion that there still lurked some lawlessness and that barbaric nature. And these fears were sometimes borne out because sometimes even seemingly well-integrated Galatians would rise up in armed revolt against Rome or its allies, only to have to be subjugated once again. So in case there was any doubt about the Galatians' place in the Roman imagination, uh, images such as this one on the screen were placed in prominent places that commemorate the glory of Rome. So Rome's glory was almost synonymous with the subjugated states of the Gauls, Galatians, Celts, Celts. Okay? And the only way to kind of resurrect themselves was to accept their death of these, these old identities as Galatians or Celts and take on new identities as faithful Roman subjects. Okay? See a, like kind of a metaf parallel illusion here? Death and resurrection, right? Uh, these subjects would display their loyalty okay, through offering gifts and worship at the altar of the imperial cult. So that's something that developed as well. Uh, they would also take arms against fellow tribes that remained rebellious. That's how they would prove their loyalty. Uh, but, you know, even the most Romanized of Galatians, the Galatian aristocracy, they were reminded constantly of their inferior lineage and heritage and background through images like this. And so it was constantly imperative that they prove their worth and loyalty as Roman subjects. Okay. So the gospel for a vanquished people. You know, so until uh, Paul came, uh, the official gospel or good news was news from Rome, right? Uh, it's the Greek word is evangelion, which was used to announce military victory by Rome, which would thus secure the safety of the town. Okay. But, you know, I mean, that's the official propaganda. But in pockets of the populace among Galatians, I mean, this Roman good news must have been like a continual salt in the wound, right, of their broken pride. I mean, it was more of a good news for Romans and those who successfully Romanized, but not for those who couldn't assimilate as easily, right? I mean, it's, uh, you can only assimilate so much at one time. But then, I mean, this guy, Paul, this obscure guy, came to the Galatians and he came with the gospel. Right, and First Thessalonians records this came with the mess. The message of the gospel came not in words only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Right? So the Christ on the cross was actually someone that uh, could the Galatians could relate to as a defeated figure. Right, because remember the cross was the symbol of ultimate consequence of going against Roman might. Right, that was a Roman execution form. So they knew what that meant. But then this weird good news was that, was that this Christ was victorious over that symbol of unbreakable strength, right? And St. Paul says in Galatians, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. And the fact that this victorious Christ loved them, gave his life for them, and now rose with them was indeed good news for them. 
as St. Paul professes, this was their profession. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? So this was a Christ that could re they could relate to. They were redeemed by this loving Christ who died for them. Okay? So a well-known commentator describes uh, their experience like this. Okay? So the good news, the glad tiding of this Christ became for them not an object, but rather an occurrence, an event, right? Happening in their midst as though it were a powerful explosion that rearranged the whole real of reality. The spirit of Christ invaded their hearts. They were baptized into this corporate son of God, i.e. the church. And impelled by the spirit of Christ, they now cried out to God as their new father. The glad tidings spoken to them by God himself created them as his new community. And in that new age community, their enthusiasm knew no limit. The love of Christ spawned love of one another and not least uh, love of Paul, whom they knew to be the messenger of God and the messenger God had sent to give the glad tidings. Okay. In other words, they experienced this like extraordinary uh, liberating event for themselves. Right after centuries of just kind of subjugation, this is the good news. Now here comes a a challenge for them. The this new enthusiasm and freedom that they found was great. Right, they experienced a taste of that new age and new creation. But once Paul left them, they still lived in the old world under the domination of real powers. Right? With this new freedom in Christ, you know, they no longer needed to measure themselves by standards of Romanization that were just tiring. Right? Uh, nor did they have to abide by the image that the Romans had projected onto them. Uh, but the question is, how are they really supposed to live now? Right? So they struggled to create and regulate and uh, create a new communal lifestyle because uh, uh, rooted in their experience of Christ, there was no precedent for this kind of new way of life. And what's more, they were actually now in a potentially dangerous situation. All subjects of the Roman Empire during this time were expected to participate in civic rites that celebrated the emperor. Okay? This was especially true for Galatian subjects who are still looked upon uh, with suspicion. Right? And this makes sense to me. When Korea was colonized uh, towards the end of the, the colonization by Japan, uh, Japan made all Koreans uh, bow to the shrine of Shinto right? uh, to prove their loyalty to uh, the mother country of Japan, because uh, Japan was getting desperate. They needed uh, Korea to be a loyal country to support their war efforts. And so it's a very real thing. Those who did not participate in it faced real consequences. And this was a big issue for among Korean Christians, whether to participate in these rituals or not. So uh, there's definitely precedent for this. So for the Galatians to shift loyalty from the Roman Caesar, like the Roman Lord, to a different Lord of Christ would once again right, bring up old suspicions of their barbarism and law lawlessness. So what were they to do? They could go back to their old ways, which I think some started to do, or they could find another way to circumvent the real pressures of cozying up to Rome. And this is where they come into contact with the Christian Jews. So we have a brief excursus now. So hopefully you guys are with me. I'm trying not to make this too much like a university lecture, but uh, 
after this week, it won't be as much this kind of lecture, but I thought that this kind of introduction and context is very important because uh, it's such a dense, complicated book otherwise, okay? As, as many of you know, the Jews, uh, they had their long history of their own, right? They had been enslaved in Egypt. Uh, uh, they escaped, and, and it was through their God they escaped. They received the covenant and the law at Mount Sinai as uh, God's chosen people through Moses. They lived through the golden era of King David and Solomon. They experienced bitter division into north and south, and the north was annihilated, uh, and then the south eventually was conquered by Babylon and its people deported. Uh, they repopulated the Israel, experienced more domination from the Greeks, and now the Romans. So the one constant, though, was their faith in the monotheistic God of Israel. Right? This God alone was to be worshipped. And they could not bring themselves to overtly worship anyone else, including the Roman imperial cult. But, uh, I mean, as you can imagine, the Roman power was real. Uh, and they couldn't just uh, directly oppose and confront them. So they came up uh, with some kind of accommodation. So the temple authorities in Jerusalem, that was the center of Jewish life, right? They would collect the tax from Jews throughout the empire and with it offer sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the emperor. So, so that's the difference. They still prayed to their own God, but they're praying for the emperor. So Rome decided to turn a blind eye uh, to that accommodation and allowed it to be the norm. So in that way, the Jews were able to survive and, and continue. Okay. So becoming a full Jew, in a way, would allow them, the Galatians, to enter an accepted uh, space. It would provide an exemption from participating in Roman rites. And uh, as full Jews, they would be conferred a certain amount of legitimacy, right? Because the Romans rather respected ancient faiths, and they allowed them to abide. Um, I mean, normally, as long as they continued to worship the emperor. But here, with the Jews, there was a special accommodation, right? And so this, I think, made it kind of an appealing option for the Galatians. And it, it was news that now that they received Christ, that they too could now enter and be part of this long-standing covenant people. Uh, it was very appealing. Uh, but this could only happen if they uh, chose to follow that Jewish law. And part of that Jewish law was for all males to become circumcised, because that was the sign of the covenant. Right? But for Paul, this move was counter to the new creation and life in Christ. Right? In Christ, there was freedom from any conditions whatsoever. All that was required was faith in that good news. Right? But now Paul saw that they were giving away their allegiance uh, from freedom in Christ uh, to the law. Right? They were not finding a new identity as people who were free in Christ but attaching themselves to conditions set down by the old age, not the new age they were now living in. So creating a condition for their freedom was yet another form of slavery. Uh, allegiance not to the law of love, but to love of conditions for acceptance. And this is how they used to live, right? They were trying to uh, be accepted in the, in, in the Roman power system, but now they're trying to be accepted as full Jews. So how does this all uh, relate to what uh, the topic at hand, right? So I just want to talk a little bit about our current context. I don't need to go through all the history, but in a nutshell, right, the history of the modern world goes like this. 
Europeans developed new systems of thought during the Enlightenment. They used new knowledge to advance technologies, particularly in the areas of warfare. They used uh, their technologies to begin searching abroad for more sources of riches. They found other lands that could contribute to their wealth. But the issue was there were already people inhabiting those lands, right? As numbers of Europeans in these lands increased, there was less room for coexistence. The other thing that developed was a trade in human beings from Africa. People were captured and sent to these places to provide labor for these European settlers. Uh, we all know this, right? And the European settlers came from Christian civilizations, right? So there are tensions between the content in the Bible and the faith and what they were doing to the indigenous and African uh, people. Uh, so they had to find a way to justify their actions. And this was the onset uh, of white supremacist ideology. They found theological and biblical justifications for their actions. And these founding justifications became the basis of a belief in the inherent superiority and almost calling of the, them as a superior civilization with a mission of civilizing other nations. So the fundamental prerequisite though for entry into this privileged new world was to be white. Only they could be blessed with this world and calling of opportunity. Anyone who met that fundamental criterion could with appropriate effort, wit and ability benefit greatly within the system. But it excluded anyone who didn't meet that condition of being white. And those who deviated from the norms established by the system were violently repressed. And there's a whole history behind that, some of which the materials dealt with. But, you know, I mean, as time moved on, slavery ended, and into the 1960s, uh, thinking started to change, right? Uh, the civil rights movement changed many people's hearts and minds. Overt discrimination against those who are not white was wrong. And be to believe whiteness was superior was wrong, too. Um, <clears throat> And in Canada as well, the thinking shifted uh, because economic needs changed and a larger labor, labor pool was required. And all these factors led to more people coming in from more uh, countries. And uh, so e equal rights ultimately became enshrined in laws culminating in Canada with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982, which is actually not that long ago, right? But here's the thing, equality under the law, however, did not necessarily translate into equality in practice. So I would argue that white supremacy actually converted into what I'm calling white normativity. I don't know if that's an official term, but I just thought of that. What I mean by this is that in our systems and structures, in our institutions, norms of thinking and behavior remained rooted in the traditional white Western ways of thinking. So diversity of complexions and people was welcome. Like, look, we're diverse. But standards and norms of thinking and behavior, I'm arguing, remained unalterably white. The cultures for these institutions are set by those at the top, which remained and I think still remain overwhelmingly white. I mean, I myself felt this in many of the various settings I encountered, right? Working for a big multinational company, uh, working in a law firm setting. I mean, at the law firm, we had to take a, an etiquette class on how to basically eat like white people, right? So like all those norms and the normativity. And there's a deep uh, resistance to those who goes against white normativity. 
uh, as an example, Paul Shin was just telling, sharing with this with me about a friend, people who have foreign sounding names and it's research has shown this to be true. They don't get job interviews, right? So this friend of his, he actually changed his last name to, to an Anglo sounding last name and boom, he got in all these interviews and he's like, now he has a great job and he's been there for a long time, right? Uh, so for those who are not white, uh, the ones who can gain meaningful entry into the system of white normativity are precisely those who can meet the norms of that normativity. And that's what distinguishes model minorities from suspect minorities. So into the mix. Uh, I mean, as we all know, Korea has had its own share of tragic and difficult history. I won't go into all that. Uh, it's a history of continual influence, dominance, and subjugation from more powerful countries. And the last hundred years were a particularly difficult time in, our, in the country's history. But I mean, for me, the main thing is what shone through is an in, in, in utter will to survive, right? And a resolve to survive in the world as it is. So to see the world clearly as it is and the will to survive in it. And with that will and resolve, you know, a lot of Koreans found themselves here in Canada. And uh, Koreans, I would say, influenced by Confucian thinking, looked upon the United States, and especially after the Korean War, looked upon the United States and the Western world as a big brother of sorts, as benevolent liberators and countries to emulate. But with that thinking, Koreans also adopted the mindset of white normativity including its views toward the suspect minorities. So model minorities blend in well to the white normative system. They put their heads down, work hard, are amenable, competent, understand the system, and function well within it. They don't rock the boat. They don't speak out too critically against it. And because of their loyalty to the system, they're rewarded with their own place in that system. It's not at the upper levels of it, nor are they given a powerful enough place to influence the direction of these systems, but you know what? It's a good enough place to eat, have some abundance and prosper. Suspect minorities, on the other hand, are viewed suspiciously. They are seen as the capital O other, just like the Galatians were in the time of Rome. Images in the media will perpetuate these suspicions and they'll evoke and arouse fears. They are the antithesis of white normativity. And I would argue that um, uh, those who bear the brunt of this sus sus suspicion are black and indigenous people. They are seen as not doing what's required to fit into the system and they're criticized. Model minorities develop views aligned with the white majority. Ah, if those suspect minorities only study harder, raise their kids better, behave more politely, stop committing crimes, et cetera, et cetera, then they would do better. So model minorities, uh, and of course the white majority, do not readily see or notice how policies and attitudes are systematically aligned against them. I'm almost at the end here. So is it a bad thing, Koreans being a model minority? I mean, it's a valid question, right? Koreans have generally fared well. Many of us uh, are materially blessed. And so what's wrong with that, right? Uh, after all the hardships we've been through, I mean, is, is that such a bad thing? I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful, right? For the blessings that we do have and enjoy. 
But I will posit that there has been a cost of uh, prioritizing survival within the system of white normativity. And one uh, verse that I take as some guidance is uh, this, Jesus. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I think, uh, understandably, uh, saving our life has been the utmost priority. I understand why. I'm very empathetic to it. But what sorts of costs have we uh, borne out? And especially for those among the uh, close to second generation and beyond. One is, uh, I think a lot of us had to run away from our Koreanness and who we really are by adopting the white mindset, mentality, behaviors, and attitudes. And in this way, losing what is distinctively great about the Korean personality and culture. It's an irony that uh, we're supposed to be multicultural, which means to bring the very diverse set of cultural nor norms that we bring. But uh, I, I would pause that we've lost much of that. For example, that Korean chung, you know. So we can adapt and fit in with white normativity, but it's kind of like putting on another cloak. It can be tiring, right? Uh, W.D.B. Du Bois, he's a famous African-American uh, scholar back in the day, said this in his book, The Souls of Colored Folk. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at one's self through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One feels his Tunis, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. Our experience is not entirely analogous to it, but I think there are definitely aspects of it, this double consciousness that we've had. And to survive in the system, it's like we almost had a double self, the workplace, professional self, and the real inner self. And this is why I think second-gen Koreans still have spaces like church, um, circles of friends, at, uh, Korean professional networks, etc., to find a space where they can merge this double self just into a more truer self. So living as this double self can be tiring. The other cost is this. We have almost willingly enslaved ourselves to reality as it is. Right? We are stuck in that old world, focused solely on survival within it. We've accepted our lack of power and agency to do anything about it or change it. And we fear losing the gains we've already made if we stick our necks out. And this is a final point, which is, I think, very relevant, is almost like there's a lack of ownership in the society. Because our society was merely a place uh, that we had to survive in, uh, it became only about my survival and what I can get from the system and how I can carve my own space within it. It never became our society, my society, but rather someone else's that I'm just finding a place to live in. 
And this lack of ownership results in a sense of alienation from the society we live in. So we're grateful for the blessings we can enjoy, but do we really feel that this is our society? That this is mine to shape and be a part of shaping, right? Or am I just a bystander enjoying the benefits I receive from it? I believe that we've learned to stay content in our own private domains. We enjoy what the system gives us, but we don't engage beyond that. And I would argue that we are still trapped and enslaved in a way, to use St. Paul's wording, by our alienation from the society. And it's why when we see movements for justice going on, uh, we don't necessarily feel that it's our issue. But we do see many white people marching in the protests lately because I think they feel like they have a stake in what happens, whether it's from complicity and white privilege, guilt or compassion, they are more engaged with what happens around them because they know that this is their society. They feel like they have a place and a stake in shaping society. Koreans and other Asians are generally more wrapped up in our own worlds, our own survival, so to speak, to be really engaged. And this is alienated existence. This alienated existence extends to our children as well. I mean, they grew up here, they speak the language, they haven't really experienced much overt racism uh, and they have all the abundance, material abundance that our society provides. Yet there's still a sense that what happens out there doesn't really involve or affect them. So that's why they have a hard time finding a purpose in life and a sense of calling because of this continual alienated existence. I would say that, yeah, as a, a second generation Koreans and beyond, we are still not free in many senses. We are still trapped in living in the old age that Christ came to free us from. Our hearts are still not set free from survival mode and enjoying our safe space within the white normative system. We do not feel like we are a part of a new creation in which we seek and find true solidarity with others who are suffering or facing hardship within the system we live in. So there are questions like this that we're gonna explore over the next few weeks some questions that are in my mind, you know, is what is true freedom? You know, what is new creation? What is the gospel for us? And what is the perversion of this gospel? And what are the implications of this message for us? Okay, so that's what we'll be exploring uh, in weeks to come. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you for bearing with me on this long introduction, but uh, I want all of us to have a time to share now. So I have some discussion, just questions. Just, we're gonna break up. Just basically share your own experiences, okay? And these are just kind of questions to trigger your thoughts. You know, have you lived a life of double self? Has survival within the white normative system been your main focus? <clears throat> Has this resulted in a sense of alienation from this society, right? How has your own experience been like being a racial minority, but perhaps part of this model minority group? All right, so I'll, I'll leave that question there. I'm gonna break people into, uh, into rooms, okay? So let me just see. Okay, yeah, I think these are some sick groups. Okay, all right, so uh, is that good enough? So it's 8.45, uh, I don't know, we'll 